sun is shining. Uh, I was out last evening and it wasn't raining. And I came home and ten minutes later there was a big huge downpour during the night. And it's all gone. When I wrote the first book that I wrote, um, I had... I wanted... When I submitted it to the publisher, the name on it, it's now called It's Easier Than You Think, which I think is a misnomer. Uh, I think you should say it's harder than you can imagine. But uh, (laughs) it's easier than you think to get the hang of what the Buddha was saying. That's not that complicated. To the degree that you're not attached to being things in any particular way, you'll have a happy life. That's true. Everybody got that. But... It's hard to have that attitude. It's harder than you can imagine. Uh, Anyway, what I wanted to do is I wanted to name it after one of the stories in the book. And the story was called Albuquerque Mind. Because I I described teaching in Albuquerque. In Albuquerque, the weather changes every five minutes, it seems like. So that we, uh, the meditation hall was a big room with uh, lots of glass around it like this, so you could see what the weather was like at any time. So you might give some instructions and the sun might be shining, and they'd say, okay, now we'll sit for 20 minutes, for a half hour, sit, ring the bell, ding. People open their eyes and it's raining, or people open their eyes and it's snowing, or people are, you're talking to people and it's snowing and blowing, and you close the eyes, open your eyes 20 minutes later, it's all beautiful and the mountains look lovely. And so I'm making the whole point that the uh, climate of the mind changes just like the climate outside. And you never know. One minute it could be one way. And you get a phone call. And it's another way. Or you get a, you get a phone call and it's another way. And you really, in a certain way, then you get another phone call. And it's another way. And that uh, somebody told me, I put it in my back pocket. Let me see. If, yeah, I did on a phone call this morning actually I was on, I was on a phone call from I was on a Zoom call from 7 to 8 this morning with 87 other people because you can see how many people are on the Zoom hey I have not seen you in a while I'm glad to see you Vicky um so you know how many other people are on the... And what's more, you have little boxes all over the screen, so you see everybody in their little box with their little name. And uh, because today, it marks 30 days that my friend Rachel died, and there's a, uh, there's a coming together, um, there's a, a, a reunion of everyone who knew the person who died and wants to pay their respects in the, weeks, in the week following that person's death. But then on the 30 days ending the first month, people who can get together in person and end another period of mourning. And I was thinking about, first of all, what a miracle it is that I am sitting in Kentfield and I'm looking at 87 other people sitting in 87 different rooms uh, with their little name under them and a little microphone with a mute sign and you can unmute yourself or mute yourself. And uh, someone spoke about Rachel for a while. Someone did a teaching. Oh, that's why I remembered to, I knew I'd need it. So someone did a teaching in honor of Rachel and they taught from Psalm 121, which begins, um, 
I, I, I lift up my, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence cometh my help, is Psalm 121. Anybody that's familiar to you, I lift up my eyes to the, from whence cometh my help. And the person who was chairing, leading this meeting, she was talking about what our help is, um, what, what's, what's the protection that we can depend on. And she said the protection we can depend on is an ever-wakeful attention is our protector. It's very interesting because most of the people on that call are rabbis who are translating that psalm into contemporary language and that, oh, I'm glad to see you again. That's also been a while. that uh, Paula you know what Paula I had to go through the wrong name first this is a, it's an in story for some reason I thought Paula's name was Gladys in the beginning I got that in my mind and I thought how nice my mother's name is Gladys so that I've got a Gladys in my class really, but her name is not Gladys it's Paula and it took me the longest time because I'd say oh hello Gladys and she'd say no no I'm Paula and today, when I saw we hadn't seen each other in a while, I thought, there she is. Wait a minute, wait a minute. What's her name? It's not Gladys. It's Paula. So I'm, I'm happy to tell you that you probably always have to go through my mother to get to you. So I'm happy about that. It's so weird how the mind works. Anyway, here we are. Uh, so here are the, all these people say, in a contemporary language, uh, it doesn't suit most people to say that there's going to be some uh, extra mundial, some extraordinary outside force uh, that's going to help us because, you know, it post, post, post what? Post, um, what do you call it? Um, the... Um, uh, Anyway, uh, what do you, what's the word for uh, after Voltaire, after uh, the... Uh, anyway, modern thinking. In modern thinking, it's not possible to talk about some extraterrestrial force or being or deity that's going to help us because that doesn't make any sense. But to say our uh, protection is an ever-vigilant an ever wakeful attention is our protection. You say, well, what is it a protection against? It's a protection against forgetting that this is the way the world is, things happen, that we can be consoled in the middle of someone's death, really, not because it's, you're not going to feel sad to miss them, but because you're going to remember, I am sad, and I do miss them, and... This is what happens in a life, that the actual protection is wisdom. We have to say, this is the way things are. So I knew when, when that person said that, that I would need to say it, I would want to say it sometime this morning. So I wrote it and I put it in my pocket. I didn't know when exactly I'd say it, and it would be that early. And what I really, why I really thought, oh, I'll mention this get-together of... 87 people, you can see in the bottom it says 87 people are on this call, that at some point 
the, uh, the person who was leading it uh, talked about Rachel and said her good, you know, some nice things. And then they said, um, now we'll sit quietly for 15 minutes. We'll, we'll all do mindfulness meditation. Or do whatever it is you want to do, she said. But we'll do it quietly. So then you're on a call, conference call, with all these little boxes, and nobody's saying anything. Everybody's just sitting in their chair. But I close my eyes, and then every once in a while you open them. It has everybody's little name in there, and some people I knew and some people I didn't know. And I was thinking about the Buddha being asked by his uh, by his Ananda, his chief attendant, asked him... Um, is it true that uh, noble friends are half of the holy life? And the Buddha is said to have answered, no, Ananda, it's not true. Noble friends are not uh, half of the holy life. They're the whole of the holy life. And I really was thinking about that in the middle of that conference call. I'm really sad that Rachel is gone. It's hard to get used to the fact that Rachel is gone. But here are all these people in all these different places, who are sitting quietly in front of their computers, thinking of Rachel together. And you don't feel so lonely about that. You don't feel like you're... That somehow they help each of... Uh, it helps me. I'm sure it helps all of them feel consoled in our loss and reminded that this is what happens to people. It's a, it's a thing that happens. We get to know people and they're dear to us. And we mean them to be. I want to talk a little bit later about um, the evolution of Buddhism in the West, which has um, moved really seriously, in my view, in the last 40, more than 40 years that I've been involved with it, from wanting to be free of the suffering of loss to being... um, um, awakened by the suffering of loss to compassion. That's what I think has happened. That the emphasis is not, I will somehow not have any connections. And so losing people will be, things arise and pass away. I think it's changed from that to, I will have emotional connections and things will pass away. And I will feel strongly about them, but I'll be all right. Because... That's, this is what people do. It's, it's, it's true. People forever have been getting used to loss. Anyway, we're just now starting. We don't even know some of you who are here for... The, who's here for the first time? Hello, what's your name? My name is Susan. And where do you live? I live in Berkeley. Uh-huh. Why did you come today? Well, that's great. When traffic wasn't bad coming over the bridge. Now tell me your name again. Susan. Susan. There's a couple of Susans here. No more Susans this morning? We usually have a few Susans. Okay. There was an era where everybody was Susan. (laughs) It was more or less my era, actually. There were a lot of Susans and a lot of Sharons and uh, an occasional Sylvia. And now Sylvia is making a reappearance, I'm happy to say, because I think it's a beautiful name, in the Latina community. 
because uh, it's a beautiful, but it's spelled with an I, but I think it's really uh, a lovely name. Who else hasn't been here before? What's your name? Hi, Mark. And where do you live? And you came up special today, or are you here today, or? I'm very glad, even if you someday go to Nepal, that you came here first. It's much more convenient. So that's great. That's great. I'm glad you're here. Uh, and you're coming up against the traffic, wasn't it? Not with traffic this morning. Probably wasn't so bad. Yeah. Well, welcome. Come anytime you like. Sometimes there are classes online too, so you don't even have to come with your body. So, but it's nicer to come with the body, though. It really is. Uh, who else is here for the first time? Yeah. What's your name? Where do you live? And why did you come today? I'm glad. And it's nice to come uh, down the back way and all the cows are standing around. And, yeah. <laughs> Who else? Yeah. My name is Karen and I live in Luxembourg. And I came with my very good friend and neighbor. And I've been meaning to come for years. Well, I'm, really <laughs> I'm glad you're here. One of the things that I'm very happy about this Wednesday event is that it's uh, Wednesday and Monday nights have been the longest-running classes uh, at Spirit Rock since before we had any buildings anywhere. And on the, in the, in the, on the website, it says drop-in, it says regular classes, and then it says drop-in classes, which is, uh, to me, it always strikes me as somewhat casual, like you could just... <laughs> Like people who really aren't serious can just drop in. But but no, what it means to me anyway is it's like the church on the corner. It's always there. If you don't go every Sunday, when you go on a Sunday, it will be there. And depending on your church, if, it's a, if, you, if your worship happens on a Saturday and you go to the nearest synagogue, the synagogue will be there and it will be reading the same piece in the Torah portion as every other synagogue in the whole world on that day. So you'll hear somebody give a talk about what that piece means. This particular week, by the way, leading up to this particular Sabbath, the Torah portion that gets read is, in the beginning God created heaven and earth, and in the beginning. It's the very beginning of the Torah scroll. And when I was a child... 
the holiday that was yesterday, which was marks the end of Torah reading and the beginning of the week where they read again, the, there are two Torah scrolls out on the reading table, and one of them is rolled so that it's open just to the last column, and the other one is opened to the, to the very beginning. And the reader, and not everybody does this, and everybody I tell it to said, oh, we have to start doing that. The reader, when I was a child, because they chant and they're reading along, does not end here and then begin here. The reader develops the ability to, reading in Hebrew and singing, of course, will, will be able to say, before the eyes of all ye Israel, in the beginning God created heaven and earth, so you'd have to take a breath in between. You end this Torah scroll and you start there in the same breath as if to say the truth of this is eternal and we never, and we, it's not that you ever get finished with it. It's an unbroken ring. Like a wedding ring is not supposed to have any markings on it because it's an, supposed to be an unbroken event. But I think about the study of Dharma, and that's why I was saying, if you come on any Wednesday, that's what I was starting out to say, somebody will be sitting up here, unless it's Christmas Day, probably Christmas Day, I'm not sure. New Year's Day, we'd definitely be here. But Christmas Day, I think, in deference for so many people, have something else to do, but otherwise. And it's been going for 23 years or so. Who, has, who besides Joe? Joe has been coming the whole entire time. Who thinks they've been there? Jashoda's been there for decades. We're just going on all the time. Who else is new this morning and hasn't said their name? What's your name? And where, where do you live? I just moved to um, San Rafael. Uh-huh. So you're going to live here? Okay. And your name? Sumuki. Okay. Suruki? Sumuki. Sumuki. Okay. What's the derivation of that? Um, it's, it's a Sanskrit name. Yeah? Yeah. yeah? Is it when you were given at birth? No, no. It was given by my guru. Oh. What, who was your guru? Sri Brahman Saraswati. <laughs> okay. There are at least two other people in this room who have names given to them by their teachers. But um, what does it mean? It means a happy face. Well, you have. <laughs> I'm glad about that. <laughs> Welcome. Do you know what Brahmani means? That sounds good, conscious communication and awareness. Jashoda, what does that mean? Jashoda was the mother of Krishna. The mother of Krishna. Yes, so a lot of courage and mother. Anybody else has a name given to them as a religious name? So welcome. I'm happy that you're here. Is that everybody who's new? Yeah. Oh. Ah. And where do you live? Oh, my name's Rebecca. I thought you were asking about a spiritual name. Do you have a spiritual name? That's what I was 
Reyesha. Do you know what it means? Well, I'm glad you're here. Where do you live? I live here. I live in Fairfax. Oh, so right near. Yeah. Please come again. Nice. That's everybody who's new. Yes? Take one minute to say hello to the people next to you, particularly if they're the people who are new, but even if you're not the people who are new. Now, I'm very glad that we uh, um, I'm very glad that we take that time to say hello to each other among other things it brings up a lot of energy and we're about to spend some time quietly in a contemplative space so it's nice especially after you've driven long and whatever uh, to wake up um, a little bit energetically also I'd like that we uh, uh, ended just a, with a brief conversation about who has a, a spiritual name that was given to them by a guru. And m- most of us do not. But I was just thinking to myself, what what would I like to have, if I had a name, 
what would I like it to mean? Uh, I like the idea of happy face. That's a nice thing. Uh, so maybe sometime we'll think about having a discussion about what would I like my name to mean. <laughs> uh, let's do some contemplative practice. One of the things we've been doing for the last two times that I was here was um, having uh, something happen in between. When we, it used to be, I'll start the sentence again, it used to be the sort of custom or established custom, which is ridiculous to say since it was I who established it, but it sounds like somebody else. <laughs> but over some period of time, we'd come and we'd say hello and then I'd give some meditation instructions and then we would sit for 25 or 30 minutes quietly. And then a few times ago, I decided to put some instructions in the middle of, not prolonged instructions, but to do something, put into what people's mind space, something in the middle of it. And truth to tell, I I hesitated to do that because I am well known in my teaching, among my teaching colleagues, uh, as not... um, appreciating guided meditations. It just tells you something about me. Maybe I'm ornery or pesky or something. I don't like people to tell me, now take your attention and put it there. Or now that you're there, take your attention and put it there. How do they know that I'm there and ready to put it there? (laughs) I like people to tell me the whole instruction up front and then say, you're on your own, go do it. I do. So we're not going to do now that you're there, do there, because I don't like that. But we've been, we've been experimenting with either stopping and saying, how did that instruction work for you, and then refining the instructions. Or today I want to do something else. I'd, I'd like to do a contemplative, um, a contemplative, uh, uh, interaction with the layman's code of conduct. Uh, Because before I said a sentence that I liked a lot when I heard it, I said um, that I think that it's got, that in the last 40 years, the emphasis in people seeking out Dharma practice, practice places and techniques has changed from looking for a technique that would rise you up and get you out of the fray of life so that you could just be unmoved to a place now where what we're talking about is not being unmoved, but being totally moved by compassion to express one, totally moved by spontaneous compassion to act in the world, because we live in the world. It's a different culture, it's a different community from the time of the Buddha, it's a different world. Uh, And so a world with a, a lot of enormous challenges leaving aside not leaving aside but passing over even the challenges of worldwide international strife and national strife and uh, political strife and poverty and war and uh, epidemics the heating of the planet within our future vision 
to really being not habitable in the way that we've known, to really bringing the emphasis in to being strengthened in our hearts not to be away and out of the arena of regular suffering, but to be able to move in an arena of tremendous suffering and do it with wisdom and compassion for ourselves as well as other people. Not to be unmoved, but to be moved in the extreme so that our lives are really shaped by compassion. I had a big talk with somebody the other day about this was not... Um, in cultivating a mind that is free of negativity. It's not about arm wrestling your mind to the ground. It's about supporting the mind so that it can meet things open-minded, open with a full understanding, which cannot be otherwise but heartbroken about what's happening and which cannot motivate anything other than taking care of it, this world. And oneself. The back cover of an edition that I just found, I, of, um, I have several copies of uh, Stephen Bachelor's Confession of a Buddhist Atheist. Because I, I think of myself in the situation of being a Buddhist atheist. I love the stories of the miraculous birth of the Buddha and that he sat under a tree and that miraculous events happened in the sky. I think they're wonderful, evocative metaphors. Uh, other people think otherwise. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't take them as literal, like in the beginning God created heaven and earth. I love people reading Torahs like that, but I don't think that happened in exactly that way 14 billion years ago. Um, but, this, but Stephen Batchelor is one of the people who I really admire. He's a very, very... Uh, his credentials in meditation practice are impeccable. And his language skills in Pali and in Sanskrit and uh, Korean are amazing. And his writing is very good. And this book about um, Confession of a Buddhist Atheist I very like a lot. And Christopher Hitchens, with whose politics I had a different view in the end of his life, but anyway, gave this review of it. He said, The human search for the transcendent, the numinous, even the ecstatic, is too universal and too important to be entrusted to the cultish and archaic and the superstitious. In this honest and serious book of self-examination and critical scrutiny, Stephen Batchelor adds to the universe of Buddhism, adds the universe of Buddhism to the many fields in which he has received, in which he has received truth, and blind adds to the university. Stephen Batchelor adds the universe of Buddhism to the many fields in which he has received truth and blind faith, which is now giving way to scientific and ethical, ethical and scientific humanism in which lies our only real hope. And I think that when I began, I know that when I began my uh, Buddhist studies and practice, the emphasis was on meditation and ecstatic events. And uh, 
in the description of Buddhist practice as being the development of ethics, the development of attention of the mind, and the cultivation of wisdom, ethics was very not emphasized. And what was most emphasized was meditation and extraordinary feats of meditation. Not just in Buddhism, in other religious lineages as well. So that you read stories about numinous experiences in all in all the great religious traditions. And what I think that Hitchens is pointing to is that what we are needing now in this uh, post-enlightenment era where the old stories don't work anymore, that what we really need to be is uh, determined in our cultivation of ethics and uh, that not not in a, a kind of... Um, um, I'll achieve this kind of a way, but ethics on behalf of non-harming. I think that uh, the the uh, meditation that I'd like for us all to do this morning, it's just one meditation. I know some people for whom it's their daily meditation, but it's just another meditation. Um, comes out of the conviction that uh, non-harming oneself or other people is the wisest way to live. If that was the rubric, it's not to be attentive to every breath as much as to be attentive to not harming oneself or other people. That has to do with how you live, how you choose to live, your lifestyle. It also has to do with looking around and thinking about being impressed, not thinking about, but being impressed by the suffering in the world and knowing that the only response is compassion for yourself or anybody else. Nothing else really assuages the the suffering that arises in the mind when we look around and see what's happening personally and interpersonally. And so I'd like for us to sit together. Sometimes people recite the layperson's uh, five vows. And rather than doing that, I'll tell you the layperson's five vows, but I'll tell you that in the context of contemplative practice. So it'll probably take us, oh, I don't know, 25 minutes, 30 maybe, we'll see. But it's an exploratory as well as a settling down practice. First of all, sit in a way that you can sit comfortably for that amount of time. Sit with dignity is an instruction that one of my friends or teachers or colleagues used to say. And I love that. Every time I think sit with dignity, I sit a little bit more dignified. Sit with dignity. Let your body relax. Let your mind relax.
you can most immediately have that happen by just feeling your body. If your body's not in a particular pain, then probably as you notice that, your mind relaxes. We're safe in this moment. If you can smile a little bit, that makes your jaw muscles relax a little bit. And really don't do anything. Just feel this body accepting the breath that comes into it, feeling the breath going out of it, in any particular part of the body that your attention is drawn to, or your whole body. (coughs) My personal experience is that um, letting my attention just rest in the whole of the body seeming to expand and then relax back and expand and relax back. If I rest my attention in that, that one action that reverberates through the whole of my body but does not require any volitional effort on my part, the body, when it's healthy, breathes itself is nourished by the atmosphere around it so there's nothing to do At intervals, beginning just now, I'll recite each of the five principles of living that are part of Buddhist understanding. And my own sense, my own experience, is that I just recited my mind once or twice maybe three times, and I leave it alone and I just sit. My body breathes itself and whatever I need to know is revealed to me. It's as if my mind or my heart speak to me and remind me in a very gentle way of something I might want to do or think about. And then we'll sit quietly and then I'll remind you of something else and I'll remind you of something else. You do everything at the rate that you want. But all very easily. All resting in the wisdom that we are all doing the best we can. And that we all want the best for ourselves and other people.
and I'll say them in the most contemporary language that I know. I'd like to live within the principle of non-harming. I undertake the determination to live in a way that is not harming to myself or anyone else.
I'm determined to live in a way in which I am not overtly or covertly taking something from someone that isn't freely given to me. May I not use my speech in a way that's overtly or covertly exploitive or abusive.
may my expressions of my sexuality not be harmful. May I not upset my mind into confusion by substances I might take into my body or by activities that might cause confusion. May I keep my mind clear so that my dedication to harmlessness can always prevail.
May these guidelines for my life be the cause of happiness for myself and for all beings. Most often we end our period of uh, contemplative practice (coughs) by (coughs) mentioning people who have been particularly in our hearts. (coughs) Sorry. Maybe we'll mention now, eyes open, as a continuation of that meditation till my whatever tickle in my throat settles itself down. Oh, I like that. Thank you very much, Susan. Thanks. I thought about we always have our eyes closed when we mention the people who are dear to us that we're thinking about particularly. And I thought about the experiment of having eyes open. We'd have to say, don't have have to say more than what we were going to say. What would you like to mention? Who is in your mind and heart? The people who haven't been here before might like to know that we mentioned these. These are prayers for people that we're thinking about that we just want other people to know about. I always like to say my prayers in terms of the name of a person and (coughs) the relationship of that person to me and what's happening with them. So this morning, for instance, not I would have, I am mentioning this 30-day passage for my friend Rachel and the pleasure I have at seeing all those people together consoling each other with telling stories about Rachel and how she was in their life. And my hope for all of them that they're consoled in their loss. 
And I also would have mentioned, and so I'm mentioning today, that on Saturday, my oldest granddaughter is going to get married to the man that she's been living with for four years and has been her boyfriend for eight. So they probably like each other. (laughs) And I'm very happy about that. And I hope that their life will be long and beautiful together. What are you thinking about today? Who are you thinking about? Did you say 86 or 96? 96. 96. And it's your mother. Who else? My friend Sue's husband, who had cancer on his kidney and had an operation, and that went well, and the margins were good, and it was all wonderful. And then yesterday, had some kind of test, and it looks like there's still cancer. thinking about my daughter Elizabeth who's battling cancer and had an MRI yesterday and we pray that the results of my sister also. Uh, she's been having double vision and numbness and she just had an MRI so we're trying to find out what's wrong. Mm-hmm. sister, her name is Wendy, and she's gathering information about a tumor that she's been aware of at the base of her brain, and it seems perhaps something needs to happen at this point, so she's 
seeing what that needs to be, and so I hope whatever she decides, and they decide it goes well and easy for her, and she can sustain some balance amidst the world. Thinking of our daughters, uh, Stephanie, Ava, and Tarka, and they're off in LA on an eighth grade service trip. They're uh, volunteering with social service organizations, and I'm hoping that in the tumult of the school development, that they're able to draw from that experience and the transformative impact that that kind of experience can have. I'm thinking about my friends, my friends Tim and Paul, who live down in San Diego, and he's just had an opportunity to be on a trial for um, a, a very road, hopefully wonderful drug for his metastatic uh, prostate cancer, because he's, uh, time is running out, and so it's, it's almost like a miracle that it's offered, and it may give him some extra time. So they're very, they're just, well, I'm sure hearing all, everybody's stories, courage uh, in this room and in the people that we're praying for. It's just, I just marvel at mm -hmm. the, the courage. May it continue. I'm praying for whoever stole my identity two days ago, that mm -hmm. they find peace and happiness in a way that is perhaps less harmful to others. I am rejoicing in the fact that uh, we have each other and we have this group of a place that we can come to and say this is worrying me and this is on my heart and hear other people say this is worrying me and this is on my heart and by the way this I'm rejoicing about and this is good in my life. This, um, I feel like it's a chiropractic adjustment every week. 
of my mind that might forget that this is the way life is with worries that we can get over and worries that we can't get over and the fact that we love that everybody here I hope has a lot of people in their um, heart whose, whose state of being is important to them and that a lot of people that that we care about and so we hear about them in clothes so far but their pain is painful to us and to have the adjustment of knowing this is what's happening you know that uh, it's not just that's life but that is life and it's also extraordinary that it's happening may all of the people that we've mentioned and those that we thought about and that we didn't mention may our wishes for them really come true may they get better or be consoled in their illness or manage their leaving in a way that's the least suffering for them and everyone else and may the people in wonderful crossroads in their life who are getting born or growing up or getting married or setting up a life may they do so in wisdom and compassion and may what we do here together be the cause of spreading some compassion into the world I was thinking about um, every week uh, every week when I, I teach here I get a piece of paper on which I'm invited to write down what's the name of this Dharma talk and um, they haven't been going up on Dharma Seed for a few weeks I don't know why that is but normally they're up two days later they'd probably fix it up in some way maybe they're behind on the website or something but every Dharma teacher in the tradition and in the Theravada tradition is on that website and they're all free you can listen to Dharma talks ad infinitum and some, a lot of people um, I, I went on there yesterday to see something and I, which is when I saw that they're not up to, ta- up to, to, up to date on me but then I looked at how many people are on that and that they're free and people all over the world are listening to them. I think that's great. Then I see, oh, look at how many Dharma talks so-and-so has and look at how many that one has and look at how many I have. But let's see how many that person has. I think to myself, there's a line in the Dhammapada that says something like, Judging and comparing fatigues the mind and leads to naught. So, <laughs> which my friend J- James Barras likes to quote a lot. Judging and comparing fatigues the mind and leads to naught. So, um, but what I was going to say is every week you have to pick another title for a talk. And, I, and you know, I, I do that. But I was just thinking... I do that in the full awareness that every week's talk has the same title. How to live with the least amount of suffering, the kindest life possible, 
given the obstacles of being alive in a complicated world. That's the name of all the Dharma talks. Everybody's Dharma talks. All the hundreds of Dharma talks that have the same. How to be alive and engaged. How to want to live knowing that old age, sickness, and death are at the end of it for all of us. I read... um, Somebody sent... One of my friends gave me a gift of this this week. It's called A Confession by Leo Tolstoy. Anybody has read this? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's not long, but it's Tolstoy saying, you know, um, as an adult, I suddenly looked around and I thought everything is meaningless. And it sounds a lot like um, a, 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 except that it's Tolstoy, so it's written in a, a very compelling way that uh, there's uh, in, that there's no source of per- permanent happiness. There's no place to rest permanently happy. That um, it sounded very much to me like um, Ecclesiastes, where the, where everything is vanity. It sounded very much to me like um, Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. I tried getting rich and being famous and. Uh, having everything in the world that I wanted, and I found that actually that was empty. And I tried this, and I tried that, and then I tried asceticism, and that was empty. That there was nothing really that led to permanent happiness, except just not having being interested in everything and not having expectations. That's me. I don't know that Hesse said that exactly that way, but there's a piece at the end of Siddhartha which I read every once in a while but haven't read for a while, where he said nothing worked, not being worldly, not being noble, not being having um, um, the, the pleasures of the body, not abstaining from the pleasures from the body. Nothing gave me permanent happiness. And in the end, he ends up being a ferryman, uh, going back and forth across the river, ferrying people from one side to the other. And realizing, just now that I'm telling you that story, I didn't bring it this week. Last week, I brought and didn't read uh, the Walt Whitman poem about crossing to Brooklyn on the ferry. Anybody knows that poem, Crossing to Brooklyn on the Ferry? Um, I'll I'll try to remember it. But it's a, a lovely poem. And he's looking out at, you know, the shore of Brooklyn. And and has the realization that zillions of people have crossed, not actually zillions, but thousands of people have crossed on that same ferry, watched those same waves, and saw that same skyline, and had the same kind of thoughts that he had, that many people came before him and did that same thing of looking over the railing, and many people are going to come after him. And he had one of those feelings of universal connection, of here I am at this moment, standing at this place on this ferry, being the person who's doing this at this moment with thousands of people before me and thousands of people after me. And one of those moments that people often describe as being a moment of sublime ease because you realize that it's not you in the world or you against the world or you with the world, but it's the world turns and 
we are each of us a part of it that's just turning around as it goes. And in the moment when ego disappears, it's one of tremendous ease. You don't have to think about what should I do next. I, I, I want to go back and talk about what was your experience with meditation, but one of the hope-for experiences in contemplative practice is the ease that exists in a moment of not needing to do, not needing to figure something out. We have to figure a lot of things out, how to drive, how to cross the street, who to go where. It's very useful to have an intellect and to think. But when it's not completely um, an I against the whole world or I separate from the whole world, but the whole world, including me, is moving is moving on the ferry to Brooklyn, on every ferry in the world at this moment, on every highway in the world, and I am part of the unfolding of the world. And then your whole story becomes a shared story of humanity. One of the reasons that I find it always, uh, maybe exhilarating is a strange word to use for it, but comforting may be a better word to use for it, when we, uh, every week, say I'm thinking about my uncle or I'm thinking about my nephew or I'm thinking about my elderly mother. There's a moment of knowing that everybody is, I am among the people who are worrying about someone who's dear to them now. The whole world is worrying about someone who's dear to them because everybody being alive is vulnerable. Tolstoy in this very dramatic way says there was nothing that had any substance. I thought about killing myself. Why do anything? I had fame, I had power, I had a family, I had this, I had that. But I realized that I'm going to be gone someday and uh, you know, the, even the recognition, it doesn't matter what kind of a... There's nothing to hold on to. And for a long time, for the, most of the book actually talks about what are we doing here. Actually, there are two very interesting points in it. I'm going to read a little bit of this to you. I turned down the page. Um, I'm gonna, I'll give you a little homework to do on this. Today or tomorrow, sickness... I was... Uh, I could give no reasonable meaning to any single action or to my whole life. I was only surprised that I could have avoided understanding this from the very beginning. It's been so long known to all. Today or tomorrow, sickness and death will come to those I love or to me. Doesn't it sound like the Buddha could have said that? And nothing will remain. Sooner or later... My affairs, whatever they'll be, will be forgotten. I won't exist. Why should I make any effort? How, could, how should I go on living? This is what's surprising. One can only live when one is intoxicated with life. As soon as one is sober, it's impossible not to see that it's all a mere fraud and a stupid fraud. What, but this is precisely what it is. There is nothing either amusing or witty about it. It's either simply cruel or stupid. There's an Eastern fable, you put your hand up when this sounds familiar to you, of a traveler overtaken on a plane by an enraged beast. You tell me when this has a familiar ring to you. 
Escaping from the beast, he gets into a dry well, but sees at the bottom of the well a dragon that has opened his jaw and is going to swallow him. What did... Everybody's phone rang. It has nothing to do with what today is. It's another way of uh, raising the national consciousness to greater agitation. (laughs) I think one of the best things we do for each other every week is we show up sane and sober, as if it's all right to come to a meeting where you close your eyes. That's, you know, that there's a reason to do this, that there's a purpose to it, that we just don't all get, you know, do something else, which would be... What does he say here? Stupid. (laughs) So anybody, so there's a traveler walking along followed by an enraged beast and falls into a well at the bottom of which is a dragon that has opened its jaws to swallow it. And the unfortunate man, not daring to climb out lest he be destroyed by the enraged beast and not daring to leap to the bottom of the well lest he be eaten by the dragon, seizes a twig Not looking familiar to you? Strawberries. (laughs) Who who doesn't know the strawberry story? Okay. On behalf of the not knowing the strawberry people, uh, a famous Zen story. I'm so proud of you. (laughs) Uh, uh, A monk is walking along on a a mesa on the outside of a jungle, and all of a sudden he realizes there's a tiger after him. So he picks up the pace and he's running and the tiger is running and he comes to the edge of a cliff at the bottom of which is a rushing river and he has no option other than to leap off the cliff and grasp onto a thick vine that's hanging there. So it's not a well, it's a cliff and it's not an enraged beast, it's a tiger and uh, he's hanging onto this vine. Okay, now we'll see what happens to this guy. Um... (laughs) He'll be eaten by the dragon. He seizes a twig growing in a crack in the well and he clings to it. His hands are growing weaker and he feels he will still have to re- soon have to resign himself from the destruction that awaits him above or below. But still he clings on. Then he sees two mice, a black one and a white one, going regularly round and round the stem of the twig to which he is clinging. And they're gnawing about it. And the twig itself will snap and he will fall into the lion's jaws. He sees this and he knows he will inevitably perish. But while he's hanging, he sees some drops of honey on the leaves of the twig. Ta-da-da! <laughs> Reaches them with his tongue and licks them. Okay, so for the end of the strawberry, as he's hanging on the vine and... Um, a mouse comes out of the... Well, he's got two mice here, so, okay. It just embellishes the story a little bit. And they're running. Anyway, the mouse comes out, and it's gnawing on the twig. Here he's got two mice gnawing. 
and uh, he sees another piece of twig on which is growing a strawberry, okay, in the story of the monk. In the story of the monk, he takes a, he picks a strawberry, eats it, and says, this strawberry is very good. Here he is licking the honey on the leaves of the t- He reaches them with his tongue. That's amazing. <laughs> and licks them. Then Tolstoy says, So I also clung to the twig of life, knowing that the dragon of death was inevitably awaiting me, ready to tear me to pieces, and I couldn't understand why I had fallen into such torment. I tried to lick the honey which formerly consoled me, but the honey no longer gave me any pleasure. I saw the dragon clearly, and the honey no longer tasted sweet. I only saw the dragon and the mice, and I could not tear my gaze from them. And this is not a fable, says Tolstoy, but the real unanswerable truth, intelligible to all. In the end, some 180 pages later, um, he tells another story, by the way, that also you will reckon, why should I live, why should I wish for anything or do anything? Is there any meaning in life whether the inevitable death that I can see does not destroy? There's, there's no meaning. We just get, we just do it. What am I and what's the universe? Why do I exist? After all of this, he comes to the end to say, you know, you just do it. You just you just do it, and try to do it. Try to do it nicely. Don't cause anybody any trouble. And it's like a letdown. It's like after this whole dramatic story, the end of it. Let's see if he says that on the last page. Well, he said he had a dream. That finally I couldn't see, and I, he had a dream similar to that dream about you're hanging in between birth and death, and and um, balanced nowhere, and I'm oh I'm in a hammock, and then the hammock starts to disappear. That's his dream, uh, and uh, that he's in the dream, frightened that the hammock will completely disappear, and he'll plunge down. There'll be nothing to support him. And then it said, even, but then in my dream, I realized that a slender pillar was really under me all the time that was going to keep me balanced, that I could be there in the middle of this whole infinite space above and below, and however I turned, I'd still be there in the middle of this vast universe. I'm not reading it exactly, but more or less. And as I was, and there was so that I didn't have to be frightened because there was no question of falling. I was safe. This was all clear to me, and I was glad and tranquil. And it seemed to me as if someone said to me, "See that you remember this." And then I awoke. So you can read that however you want. In this last week in synagogues, they read Ecclesiastes, which, if you have the time or the interest to go and look at says the same, everything is vanity, all is vanity, and it, it again goes through, you can have fame and nobility and do great things and lots of riches, but in the end, it's all, it's nothing, and there's really nothing to hope for. And then at the end, it says, listen, just try to have faith and do good things. 
And many of the scholars, the biblical scholars, think that they were not written by whoever wrote Ecclesiastes to begin with, that it was stuck on the end of Ecclesiastes because otherwise it was too depressing a piece of scripture and that nobody would want to read it if you wanted interest in see if you have a Bible at home, read Ecclesiastes. You see the whole thing is it's is just like Tolstoy, it's not worth it, it's not worth it, it's not worth it. What ace? I've, I've just been here for this all this time and I was thinking about and I was thinking uh, when we were talking about each other and about an ease of being. Yeah. And and I was thinking about I was hoping everyone would have an ease of being. And that's that's really I hope I hope that's true. But the heart gets in the way of the ease of being when when it's great, it's really great, but when people are sick or die or how do you have an ease of being with when your heart or when I think I think that what that's that is what the heart's about because you can't give up on compassion because you, I think that the hope is that we'll come to see in our lives in the middle of our pain that it's first of all that you that we uniquely do not we're not uniquely having this pain that everybody's got it and that we hold them up when they're having the pain and they'll hold us up when we're having the pain i had the experience a few years ago of um, visiting a couple of times not until he died an old, old boyfriend that I had had when I was in, in high school. I was 15 years old. He was probably 16. We lost track of each other. Many, many, many years later, like 50 or 60 years later, uh, through some connection, we re-met. And, um, so that was the circumstances on which we re-met. I had a husband. He had a long-term wife. Very nice people. They lived in New York. We met them periodically when we were in New York. And then he took ill, and he died also of uh, a cancer that was not curable. And um, speaking to your point, Ace, uh, he said uh, he was quite sick with his cancer and bald, and um, he knew that the end was not far. He said, you know, I'm not worried about it. He said, because I have a lot of friends he said, and my friends are all about my age. He was very active in volunteer organizations and coaching. And uh, He said, I have a lot of friends, and my friends have started to die. And as they were dying, uh, and when they got really sick and they were bedridden, so all of us used to come around, all the guys would come around, and we'd hang around and talk to him as he was in his bed. And we really talked him out of his life. We were all there. At the, until the end, and he said, "So I'm not so worried about it." He said that we were we were meeting for dinner in New York, so he was still moving around. He said, "When it comes my time, all the guys are going to come and be around me, and they'll be keeping me company at that time." And I was so touched. I didn't think he ever. I mean, he heard of the Buddha, but he wasn't any scholar of Buddhism, or uh, he wasn't a devout man in the sense of thinking that there was going to be an afterworld. He said, I think all my friends are going to come and hang out with me, and it'll be all right. And I was aware that he was telling, what he's telling me, it sounded like I'm going to have a birthday party. 
and all my friends are going to come. But it says, it's like, I'm going to have a death day party, and all my friends are going to come. And I thought in some quite ordinary, everyday way, he's saying, it's our friends who receive us into this world and who you know, help us out at the other end. And if we just see it, if, if in the moments that we can see ourselves as passing through, like on the ferry from Manhattan to Brooklyn, in the course with zillions of people before and zillions of people afterwards, that what the Buddha really taught, which was his piece of uh, 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 reconstructionist uh, Brahmanism, was that there's no separate self. There is creation, and every single thing in it is changing. And the prevailing uh, religious concept before that is that everything, cha- I mean, people age and get older and die, but there's an Atman that's like the self or the soul that passes on and passes on through many lives. And the Buddha's um, radical um, sort of Martin Luther moment of this isn't true was saying there is no separate self. Anatta means everything is changing. And if we say, well, wait a minute, where is the, where is, who's watching it? Okay, if these are all images on, my, on the retina, where is the seer? Where's the reporter? Something is telling me well, that's Pam in the back row. Where's that? Where is that that says it's Pam in the back row? Okay, it's somewhere a piece of the 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 the, the memory neurons somewhere stored in this brain are memory neurons that allow me to know that you're Ace and that's Pam. So I get up in the morning. I look in the mirror. I know who I am. I actually know before I look in the mirror who I am. <laughs> Actually, I feel more familiar to me when I'm before I look in the mirror. <laughs> look in the mirror, you think, where did that old lady come from? <laughs> Who has that feeling? You ever look in the mirror and think, where did she come from? <laughs> it sneaks up on you. <laughs> but I think that the thing is, it's not that you don't feel moved by it. It's poignant. But consoled by it, you know, this is this is what happens. We get disappointed with things. The, the, I, I have so many things that I want to tell you today. Maybe I should just tell you all the things first to make sure I told you, and that because I want to hear what happened in the meditation. Maybe I'll tell you all the things. This book is published. Its pub date is yesterday. It's called Resilience. I'm sure you can buy it in the bookstore. I hope you will. It's written by Linda Graham. Linda Graham is a local psychologist. She's also a friend of mine. And it's a sequel. It's a manual that goes with a book called Bouncing Back. Bouncing Back is a, is a very good book that Linda wrote a few years ago that um, talks about the ability of the mind to recover from being distraught or grief-stricken. There was a period of time after my mother died when I had a very, very serious depression, during which time 
I, um, I actually was thinking that line from Tolstoy about once you get it, that no matter what you do, this is a, a journey that ends in dying. What's the point? I hope you are all at this moment not in that point of thinking because it was terrible when I was in that. I actually thought that I could not figure out a reason to continue to live where no matter how many vitamins and how good you were and how many languages you could speak, you were actually going to die. At uh, Somebody, I can't remember who said it, but it was some sage said, I always knew that everybody was going to die, but I didn't actually believe it was going to happen to me. You know, that it's hard to believe that it's going to happen to you. And this is what the Buddha is saying. It happens to everybody. But... Yeah, I remember. <laughs> Mickey is saying, Woody Allen said, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> Actually, you know, when my dad was dying, he said a similar thing. He said, uh, I'm not afraid of dying. He said, I'm not afraid of being dead. I just don't want to be there when I'm dying. So I said, well, listen, Dad, I don't think uh, you have to worry about that because the thing with your disease is probably before you're actually at the moment of your death, you'll probably be in a coma. You'll be asleep, so you won't know about it. He said, you think so? I said, yeah, I think so. He said, okay, turn on the ball game. (laughs) (laughs) So I did. You know, that... that, 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 (laughs) You, You have to leave. Okay, we didn't offend you, did we? (laughs) Please come again. Okay. Take good care of yourself. You know, at some point, people began to say, instead of saying goodbye, they'd say, take care of yourself, or take care. Sometime in the last 10 years or 20 years, and I think it's a nice thing, you know. Uh, the other thing is nice, too. Because goodbye, anyway, means God be with you until we meet again. It's just an illusion of that. So that's also a caring statement, but take care of yourself. Anyway, so I was going to say, <coughs> by, I think you'll like it. This is Bill, how do you bounce back from when you are really down? So at that particular time in my life when I was really overwhelmed with why do you live if you what's the point? And there was nothing going on bad in my life at that point. It was actually several years after the, my mother's death where the fact that I had not really gotten it that she was gone caught up with me several years later. And how I got over it was with time. Uh and uh was way before there were, I don't know if I would have called it, but I would have been have a depression. It was not a depression that was a, it was something, but there weren't any pills, and I just had supportive friends and a supportive therapist. But there's the, the idea of how do you get over it. But everybody here has gotten over death. I'm pretty sure, look around at the age of everybody here. Everybody here has lost someone significant to them. 
And then we, and during the time, I can remember times when I had been really bereft and I thought, you know, I'm never going to laugh again. But you laugh again. That, that body resilience, it gets better. The body somehow recovers from that kind of thing. Recovers from griefs of... A, a friend of mine, anyway, who lives on the East Coast, has been in touch because their partner of almost 30 years has just decided they want to end the relationship with no preamble. And this friend of mine is distraught. This is a, it's like a death, you know, that all of a sudden. So there's so many times that the mind is assaulted, at which point I think what the best is that we have friends that say, you don't have to take care of yourself, I'll take care of you for a while, I'll help hold you up. So there are two more things I want to make sure. This is all out of order for what I was going to tell you. I was going to come in and say, if you were as uh, dismayed this week with uh, the news and the uh, onslaught of breaking news, breaking news, each breaking news more irritating than the breaking news before <laughs> and more upsetting. I was going to say, what do you do? Well, we talk to our friends, we call up, we talk this, we talk that. We listen to those commentators who say the things that we like. But that, of course, also uh, churns up the righteous indignation, which um, might not be so smart. So I did a very good antidote yesterday. I went to the Smith Ranch, Smith, Smith Rafael Film Festival Center, and I saw Pick of the Litter. Who saw Pick of the Litter? Did you not love that? Ah. Uh, Actually, the uh, uh, it, it was recommended. My it was recommended to my son. Some of some of you met him. He was here one time talking about the AIDS ride to San Francisco. Uh, but I he he said to me the other day, I was saying I was so distraught about the news. I found it so upsetting. Then he came back a little bit later and he said, Ma, I feel out what you should do. Go to the Rafael. Go see the movie. So the movie is about the guide dogs for the blind and it follows a, a litter of puppies from five puppies born to this dog and it actually starts with the puppies being born out of the mother. So if you haven't ever seen a puppy coming out of its mom, you actually see the puppy coming out and, uh, and the, the helper who's helping her says, just one more push how many people have here? I remember them saying, just one more push. Here comes this puppy. And right away, it gets washed in its face and its eyes get drops and it's, everything gets happened. And then it gets plugged into its mother. And from then on, the movie's just an hour and a half or something. But you see about how guide dogs are, are first of all, kept by a puppy trainer till they're six months old, just on the standard routine obvious ways that you train a puppy and then it stays with another trainer for a year and a couple of months where it really begins to learn serious things and then if it passes 
certain tests, it goes on to college. It comes back to, uh, I think then in San Rafael, the uh, guide dogs for the blind, where they say, this is puppy college. And those puppies are enormous. Those dogs are fantastic. They really stop you in... They know that if you give it the command to go forward and there's a car coming, they won't go. Um, If a car comes towards you, the dog pulls you back. So they will disobey commands when... how, How they teach that. This is, you know, okay, obey a command I can get, but don't obey a command. That's really complicated. And a couple of the puppies graduate to be guide dogs, and some of them don't. They have what's called a career change in the middle, <laughs> where they find, uh, I mean, it's so PC, you don't know, say so they failed out of college. They had career changes. But when you leave, so you, you saw, why, did, why do you think you feel so good when you're finished with that? Aside from the puppies are cute. Why else? Well, there's no bad news, even that, you know, your puppy failed the test, so that's a bad news. Uh, <laughs> you rescued the person, you know, I thought that was great. One of the trainers uh, who has the puppy from six months to 16 months uh, is a returning vet with PTSD. And he loves that puppy from the minute it's assigned to him. And it's very, I get tears in my eyes. And he's so attached to it. There's a lot of kissing of dogs that happens in that movie. Didn't you notice a tremendous amount of with with the dogs? At one point, I thought, you know, uh, it's lovely. I think it's terrific, the kissing of dogs. I thought, how many children have their parents kiss them so frequently, so vigorously? You are terrific. You did that great. You know, it's really a, a, the people who are school teachers here, which I know are several. You know, you make a big fuss when somebody does it right, because then they do it right again and say, "Whoa, great, good girl." They never say anything like bad. They say, "Let's do it again. Let's do that again. Let's try that another way." You know that. A lot of kissing of dogs. And his dog does not manage to get it together to go on to dog college because it's too frisky and it's too uh, uh, diverted by passing things, by, by things passing by. And they call him up and tell him, we have some bad news for you. Uh, your puppy is did not pass the test. So he said, oh... Then you, and you, you see this, he's on the phone, his mother is an older woman sitting there. And then the person on the phone says, but we have two options for you. Um, you could keep the puppy as your personal dog. Or he has, he has the possibility of going on to be a, a, um, um, an aid dog, uh, the uh, diabetes people are interested in him because now they have dogs who can smell ketosis and can tell you that you need to take your insulin so you could give it to a blind and they're not blind the people with diabetes with diabetes so they could have a dog as long my daughter works with a man 
who has a dog that alerts him to his insulin needs. So you could, he could either go to that school and get trained, or you could have him at home. Do you want to think about it a little bit? He said, well, I thought about it for about five seconds. I'll take him. <laughs> and, 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 then, and the movie ends with him going to pick him up, and um, his mother's driving, and he's saying, I'm so, you know, and he's a, he's a grown man somewhere in his 30s probably. And he says, I'm so excited. I feel like I'm going on a date. I'm just so excited. <laughs> and then you see him united with his puppy, who recognizes him, of course, and the, the dogs, if anything, are over-enthusiastic. Everybody is like Santa Claus that they meet. <laughs> and he's having this great kissing fest with his dogs. <laughs> and that somehow, it's... So you tell me, why is that? You didn't even see the movie, but why does that... Did you feel better now that I told you about that? Why do you think? Yeah, I think it's love. I think it's... You see that somewhere in the world... People spend all day of their whole working career training a few dogs to help a few blind people get through their life better. You know, it's not like saving the world from blindness, but it's like providing dogs for people. They say out of every, what did they say, 800 dogs that they take on, 300, I don't remember, Make that make the cut and go on to be that they've trained. Three hundred have become guide dogs, something like that. That's right, I think it was that wasn't that right? Uh, when I was here previously, just a few weeks ago, there's a card I noticed in the uh, bookstore here that says, "May I, something like, may I become the person my dog thinks that I am." I forgot your name. Tom. Tom, thank you very much. I love that. May I become, yeah. <laughs> My son had a golden retriever for a while. He said, you know, if I go out to get the mail, if I just walk out of the door and go down the driveway to the mailbox, I come back and the dog behaves like I've been gone for three weeks. You know, that is enthusiastic. Uh, <laughs> be wonderful if we did that with our partners, wouldn't it? They come and say, wow, you're home, how great. <laughs> well, I, actually, I, I was hesitant, but I'll say it now since it's all sort of come around, but we lost our dog of 13 years last um, week. Uh, actually, we can go today. Um, and um, it, it was, you know, quite moving. Um, but my wife told me something that uh, speaks kind of to what we were just, what I was just saying, and what we were, about the dogs um, or other domesticated animals, perhaps, but dogs especially. And but she said that our son, went, when my mother died, who he didn't know, unfortunately, really well, he, he had some time with her, some years, but um, and he confided to um, to my wife, um, not to me, um, that he felt more sad when our first dog died than when he did when Grammy died. Mm -hmm. And that he had more emotion. And that didn't offend me at all because I, mm -hmm. I felt it, um, you know, also in, in different ways. Yeah. But, uh, they, they offer quite a lot. And a lot of the substance that we're talking today um, can be learned through an animal. Um, and I certainly benefited from that through uh, mm -hmm. uh, the teachings of my dog. Uh, so, so. 
Oh, thank you very much. And I, I, you know, I'm touched by your dog just died. I, I have a like a. We, we're estimating he's 18 years old because we got him 15 years ago, and the vet thought he was probably three by then. And he's arthritic and deaf, but um, but food motivated. And without hearing, he knows that I've opened the refrigerator because he comes, I can hear his little feet. Um, and every time I come home, I think maybe he won't be alive. One of these days, not. But you, you, it, you really get used to having somebody in your life. I was, what, yeah, no, go ahead. Uh, I just, because it's something that bears on a, on a real lesson that I've experienced and gained um, from this past week, and that is a, a, a space that, um, that I think is powerful to occupy that um, I got into through the dog. And that's use the, use the, the... Oh, sorry. Uh, this, this space of um, having simultaneously a, a memory, a very present memory, say, remembering the smell for, of my dog, for instance, which is you know, very recognizable to me and I can remember. And then simultaneously the feeling of that's never going to be here again. You know, so this loss with a very present experience of something and that's a, that's a very powerful place to be. It's sort, mm-hmm. of, it's sort of that having two opposites, in, mm-hmm. but as an, as an emotion, not an intellectual thing. But, yeah. yeah, no, 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 very real. And that we, we, we have a resilience, we, are, we get over it, we remember. <laughs> it's very dear about your son confessing. It makes, it makes him a lot of sense, you know. Thank you for sharing that, actually. One of the things that I, that I, since I won't be here now for, I don't know, a couple of weeks. Am I here next week? Oh, I am here next week. Good. That's one of the things I want to tell you. I am definitely here next week. And I am here with this book with um, Tony Bernhardt. Not the Tony Bernhardt that you know. The wife of the Tony Bernhardt that you know, whose name is also Tony Bernhardt. <laughs> Uh, and uh, um, and Tony has wrote this book. She wrote a book called How to Be Sick 10 or 12 years ago, 10 years probably. I don't actually remember, but I wrote the, the foreword for it. Now she has written a revised and updated version, and it's very, very good. And I don't even know where my old one is, but I'm reading this one. And it's really excellent about the truth about old age sickness and death and that being sick with an incurable illness that you don't die from is a particular kind of a grief that you get used to that you go to somebody and they say huh we see that you have multiple myeloma it's you're not going to die from this for some years but you're now sick forever you join the ranks of people with blood tests and sicknesses and or now you have diabetes, and your whole rest of your life you never unhave diabetes. How to be sick is what this is about. And it's a very cheerful book in the sense of Tony's a very good storyteller, 
and she tells some, uh, you know, interesting and funny and certainly uh, readable anecdotes about her own self. And she's going to come with me next week. And it's very unusual for her to go anyplace because they live up in uh, Davis and it's a long ride and she has been sick for 15 years and a long drive in the car is hard. So she doesn't do book clubs and she doesn't do book passages but uh, here she likes to come. She feels that you know comfortable here. And she came here the last time so I really, really hope you come next week because this is what we're talking about and Tony's a lovely person. And Tony will come. This is one more thing that I wanted, I want to tell you because I brought it last week to tell you. It's just a thing to think about. This is about, and because we did the morality meditation and we ran out of time to talk about it, did you? So we'll just have a one question. Did you learn something interesting from the morality meditation? Was it interesting? Did you fall asleep? Was it boring? Yeah. I love the, I think it was the last one that said, may you get happiness from these teachings. And it just flipped it over for me, like in a very powerful way. And it wasn't like catechism, you know, do this, do this, do this. Um, so instead of being catechism, it was like, this is how to have a happy life. And it just made it really much more attractive to me. <laughs> I think that's a very wonderful addition to say, like, what if we had a book called, This is How to Have a Happy Life? This is how to, well, we do. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace is the first line of the Metta Sutta. This is how to have a happy life. So this is from, I've been carrying this around. I haven't had it on my person since July 7th, 2013, but I read one, and I probably talked about it at the time. But talking about why are we meditating, and the point that I started to talk about is at least I didn't know why I started meditating. I started meditating because in 1984 and everybody was meditating. It was very hip. And I don't know what we thought, maybe that we would levitate or we would never feel touched by the pain of the world. We'd sail above it. I have no idea what I thought about it, but everybody was doing it, so I did it. And over the years, I for a while thought that if I had enough experiences of extreme tranquility, I would become you know, more soigné in my life, more tranquil. I don't have a tranquil metabolism. It's, um, I, wouldn't, I, like, I, I hope when I'm gone that people will say about me that I had a degree of wisdom. But I don't have a tremendous tranquility. It's not my long suit. Uh, I'm very excited about all kinds of things, and I enjoy being excited. But this is saying it's not about tranquility. And this particular writer is writing about, uh, he's discussing, well, meditation is fast becoming a fashionable tool for improving your mind with mounting scientific evidence that the practice can enhance creativity, memory, and scores on standardized intelligence tests. Interested in practical benefits are growing. He said, but... Well, this is all well and good, he says in the next paragraph. But if you stop to think about it, there's a bit of a disconnect between the pursuit of these benefits, doing well on tests, etc., and the purpose for which meditation was originally intended. Gaining competitive advantage on tests and increasing creativity in business weren't of the utmost concern to the Buddha. 
uh, and early meditation teachers, as the Buddha himself said, I teach one thing and one thing only, that is suffering and the end of suffering. As many spiritual leaders, the goal of meditation is as simple as that. The heightened control of the mind that meditation offers, it is a certain amount of control of the mind, we're training it to be here doing this, allows them to break, allows them, allows practitioners to see the world in a new, in a new and more compassionate way, allowing them to break free from the categorizations me and them, us and them, self and other, that commonly divide people from one another. So they did a test. 40 people were from the Boston area, 39 actually, from the Boston area, were willing to take part in an eight-week course on meditation who had never taken any meditation before. We randomly assigned 20 of them to take part in weekly meditation classes, which also asked them to practice at home using guided recordings. The remaining 19 were told that they were put on a list, waiting list for a future course. After the eight-week period of instruction, we invited the participants to a lab for an experiment that purported to examine their memory, attention, and related cognitive ability. But as you might anticipate... What actually interested us was whether those who had been meditating would exhibit greater compassion in the face of suffering. To find out, we staged a situation designed to test the participants' behavior before they were aware that the experience, experiment had begun. When a participant entered the waiting area for our lab, he or she found three chairs two of which were already occupied. Naturally, the new person sat in the remaining chair. As he waited, a fourth person, using crutches and wearing a boot for a broken foot, entered the room and audibly sighed in pain as she leaned uncomfortably against a wall. This gets worse. Wait, wait. (laughs) The other two people in the room, who, like the woman on crutches, secretly worked for us, ignored the woman thus confronting the participant with a moral quandary. Would he act compassionately, giving up his chair for her, or selfishly ignore her plight? Dun, 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 dun. So we'll see. The result was striking. 16% of the non-meditators gave up their seats, an admittedly disheartening fact. The proportion rose to 50% among those who had meditated. This increase is impressive not solely because it occurred only after eight weeks of meditation, but also because it did so within the context of a situation known to inhibit considerate behavior, witnessing other people ignoring a person in distress. It's what psychologists call the bystander effect. Although we don't know yet why meditation has this effect, one of two explanations seems likely. The first rests on the meditation's documented ability to enhance attention, which might in turn increase the odds of noticing someone in pain, as opposed to being lost in one's own thoughts. My favorite explanation, though, derives from a different aspect of meditation, its ability to foster a view that all beings are interconnected. 
The psychologist Piercarlo Valdesolo and I have found that any marker of affiliation between two people, even something as subtle as tapping their hands together in synchrony, causes them to feel more compassion when the other is distressed. The increased compassion of meditators, then, might stem directly from the meditation's ability to dissolve artificial social distinctions like ethnicity, religion, ideology, and the like. I like to think, he said, that it comes from an empathic understanding of other people's distress. Isn't that amazing to you that 16 people, 16% of the people got up and 50% of the people got up? Wouldn't we all get up? You're sitting in a chair, a person comes in on crutches with a boot and leans on the wall and says, ha, yeah. (laughs) It's terrible that everybody didn't get up. (laughs) I remember a thing with, who knows the name Kitty Genovese? You remember that? A woman, alas, who died in an attack on her in a courtyard in a very populated part of New York City where she called out a lot for help for a long time and many people heard her and nobody went to her aid. You know. Elizabeth. Everybody, everybody came out of every building and store and to look for this person who was yelling and yeah. find out if they needed help. Yeah. After that had happened to her. After that had happened. Yeah. It's just hard to know. You know, we didn't, I'm happy to say, we didn't talk about politics at all today. Um. <laughs> uh, I, I just I I um I think that that I, I myself I'm not going to say about anybody else I myself have had a little bit of breaking news syndrome that there's too much breaking news and it's startling everything is a breaking news not enough time to assimilate it so I can read about it the next day anyway my going to the Rafael was a way of um, Soothing my mind. Yeah, Linda. When you're talking about animals, I reflected, I reflected on a, a friend of mine wrote a book called Dog is My Doctor, Cat is My Nurse. And it's all stories about people whose lives have been changed because of their animals in one way or another. It's pretty fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and... I think that so many of us have had experiences with animals that when we were reminded by seeing puppies and babies yeah. and things, yeah. how joyous. Yeah. I thought, I thought while I was seeing the movie yesterday that one of, the, uh, one of the groups of people who come to adopt a six-month-old to keep it for a year is a, um, a couple... And there looks like eight or nine year old son, and everybody falling on the dog and kissing and hugging, 
And I thought to myself at some point, I actually leaned over to my husband and I said, you know, this boy is now safe. He is not, not going to be anybody who makes a riot or does a harm on another human being. If you grow up with parents who are willing and eager to take in a six-month-old puppy and that you're going to have to give up at the end of the time on behalf of some unknown blind person somewhere, you grow up with very good instincts yourself. And everybody, including the father and the mother and this boy, are kissing the puppy goodbye at the end. Well, now a full-grown dog goodbye. But honestly, it's playing on and on in the Rafael because I think a lot of people want to see it. So by all means, it's at 6 o'clock in the Rafael and it's out at 7.30. Go see it. It's good for you. So I'll see you next week. Please come because Tony's going to come. May all beings be peaceful and happy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.